Anybody? Yeah, you can tell I'm not, I am the relief pitching staff because little things like that, it just totally disables me. Um, but so this is a, a sermon I preached back in 2013 on um, a really familiar story from the Bible. Um, I like to think of this as, it, this is coming through, right? I like to think of this as like the, uh, the, the sequel story to Noah's Ark. Um, it's not as popular, not as many people know about it, but it's still, it's still pretty out there in like popular culture. You've probably heard of the Tower of Babel. Um, so it's in Genesis chapter 9 that I'm going to be reading from. Uh, I'll have the verses up on the slides, um, so you can follow along in your Bibles if you want to fact check me, either digital or paper ones that are in the chairs. Um, so in Genesis chapter 9, the story of the Tower of Babel starts like this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen is like asphalt, I learned while preparing this. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Will you pray with me? God, I, uh, I just want to ask that this sermon is of use to you and the work you want to do here today in the hearts of the people listening. Um, amen. So because this story is um, one that people especially if you've been in church, already know. Uh, and I'm just realizing that this is also the time when we're supposed to say, collect the offering. So um, Renee is going to be bringing baskets around. Uh, if this is your church home, please give as God leads you. Um, if you're just checking this out, don't feel compelled. Let this be our gift to you. Sorry, Renee. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because this is a story a lot of people know, uh, I think it's really easy for us to come to it with an understanding that we already have. Um, and I think there's kind of a conventional understanding of this passage, and it looks like this. It, we actually, what I think people tend to do is they tend to take this idea that shows up elsewhere in the Bible, and they read it into this passage. And so I've chosen this verse from uh, the book of James, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, so a lot of times if you'll, if you'll hear this passage preached, or you'll read commentaries on it, um, this is the understanding people bring, this assumption that what's going on here is that God is upset with the people of Shinar because they've gotten too big for their britches and he's going to take them down a peg. Um, the problem I have with this interpretation, it's not that I don't believe this to be true. I do believe God opposes the crowd and gives grace to the humble. The problem I have using that to understand this passage is that it, I don't think it's in there. Like, if you read the passage you won't find a phrase where God condemns the people of Shinar for being too proud. It's not in there. Um, 
And so, and, and if you read the rest of the Bible, you kind of get the impression that when God has something to condemn, uh, he doesn't really pull punches. He doesn't hold back. Um, throughout the book of Genesis, there's plenty of times that God takes people to task for something they're doing wrong. Uh, and so I, I kind of think this is wrong-headed. Um, and so I want, and, and in any event, it also defies our common sense, right? Like, if you think about uh, God having a problem with people building large towers, like, why did we get away with this one, right? This is the Burj Khalifa. It's the tallest building in the world, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, despite knowing nothing about archaeology, that whatever these ancient Mesopotamians were doing with brick and bitumen, it wasn't as big as that. And, I mean, maybe, maybe it's not so much having a tall building as this, this desire to ascend to the heavens, except we do that too! We have rockets! And now maybe you have a theological framework that justifies this. Maybe you think, well, John, yes, but you know, God has like, ceased this period of miraculous intervention in human history. I don't believe that, incidentally, but maybe you do. But if that's true, what's with the pyramids? Like, everything that was wrong and bad about the Tower of Babel was true of the pyramids. If you, if you know anything about ancient Egypt, like, the pharaohs believed that through these pyramids they were going to ascend into the afterlife, right? And they built these huge monuments. So, and uh, to be clear, I do think maybe, just maybe, th- that this is coming from ancient Israel. Maybe there's a subtle jab at Egypt in this story, but I don't think that's the point, right? So if that's true, if, if, if I'm telling you you've got it all wrong or conventional interpreters have it all wrong, what do I actually think is going on at this story? And I think we can answer that question by looking at the other details that are in the story, because I don't think they're there by accident. One of them is, uh, what is this place, Shinar, that they refer to? Um, I am told by scholars that the word Shinar shows up uh, you know, four or five times in the Hebrew Bible, and it, outside this passage, always refers to one place. Uh, and I'll give you a hint. It starts with Babel. And it rhymes with John. Babylon, right? Uh, This ancient, huge civilization and empire that um, we know in other parts of the Bible had uh, captured the Israelites and taken them into exile. And I will say, uh, I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that the same time, or or maybe in the same set of centuries, right? Time gets fuzzy with ancient archaeology. But around the same time that the Israelites were taking their oral tradition, um, and turning it into written documents. The Babylonians were undertaking a reconstruction project, not a construction project, but a reconstruction project of a giant ziggurat called the Etmananki. And this is a picture of the archaeological site as it exists today. So um, this was an ancient uh, ziggurat, which is just a big, kind of looks like that in the previous picture, uh, a big, like, a square pyramid structure um, that lots of ancient Mesopotamian cultures built as part of their empires and part of their religion. Um, and the king of Babylon um, was rebuilding this. And I, I can't help but think, I, I'm not saying that, that, that you know, the Jews in the 600 BC were inventing this story as a satire of Babylon. I don't mean that. But I think in the same way that Sometimes we retell stories, like I'm retelling the sermon, like we make movies about Abraham Lincoln or um, 
even mythical stories like Captain America, when, when we retell them, we try to retell them in a way that's relevant and fresh to our present circumstances. And a lot of times we find that the themes in there are still relevant and fresh to our present circumstances. And I think the same thing is going on in the Tower of Babel story. I think there's this ancient Israelite critique of what Babylon was about. Um, so what was Babylon about? Uh, well, we know what they're about because they left documents, right? Uh, this is a cuneiform cylinder that was actually laid in the foundation of um, the ziggurat in Babylon. Uh, and on it, the king of Babylon had commissioned writing to describe what he was doing, right? What, what this was and why it mattered. Um, and I'm going to read you some, sele- he goes on a bit, uh, so I'm going to read you some selections from, from that page. Um, so at the time, my lord Marduk, Marduk incidentally is the god of Babylon, told me in regard to Etamenanki, the ziggurat of Babylon, which before my day was already very weak and badly buckled, to ground its bottom on the breast of the netherworld, to make its top vie with the heavens. Does this sound familiar? I fashioned mattocks, spades, and brick molds from ivory, ebony, and some kind of wood, and I set them in the hands of a vast workforce levied from my land. A vast workforce levied from my land. Oh, that's slavery, right? Like, that's what that means. Or at least probably something pretty close to it. I'm guessing king with a giant army can kind of make people work for him when he wants to. All right, so we're already getting some ideas about what uh, the ancient Israelites who were delivered out of slavery from Egypt might have thought about these giant monuments. Um, But he goes on, and he says, I had them shake mud bricks without number and mold baked bricks like countless raindrops. I had the river Aratu bear asphalt and bitumen. There's that weird word again, like a mighty flood. And then he says this. I I rolled up my garment in my kingly robe and carried on my head bricks and earth. I had soil baskets made of gold and silver and made Nebuchadnezzar, my firstborn son, beloved of my heart, carry alongside my workmen earth mixed with wine, oil and resin chips. I made Nabusumulisir, maybe, his brother, a boy, issue of my body, my darling younger son, take up mattock and spade. I burdened him with soil basket of gold and silver and bestowed him, his son, on my Lord Marduk as a gift. Now, I am not uh, an archaeologist, and I'm not sure, but doesn't that sound like maybe it's something close to child sacrifice? I feel like this is just a laundry list of things ancient Israelites would have condemned, right? In the, in the minor prophets and the rest of the Bible, this just sounds like something is really going wrong in the reconstruction of this ziggurat. Um, and I suspect that this story was already in their oral tradition before they wrote it down, and this critique was already relevant, right? Because, you know, the king of Babylon is rebuilding this thing that was built before, probably with exactly the same methods and with exactly the same intent. Okay, cool history lesson, John, but why does it matter? Why does what a bunch of long-dead exiles thought about a long-dead empire matter? I think it matters because when we understand the story in that context, it speaks to questions that are at the heart of our lives and how we think about ourselves. 
Uh, big question here is, who is God? Right? What is God like? What is the most important person in all existence like? And I think if, uh, if you read the story through the conventional interpretation, God sort of looks like this, right? He looks like God from Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. Uh, there's this big, angry king in the sky, and he shows up every now and then to harass other kings and get them to do stuff for him. And occasionally he gets mad and he smites somebody, right? And the beef I have with that is that, that this is the funny version but the serious version, if you, if you actually worship something like this, what it ends up looking like is the god of Babylon. Uh, I don't want to give a course in Babylonian mythology, but I feel like this, this kind of oppressive god uh, that you can tell is there in the writings of the king of Babylon, right? Um, I, think, I think he ends up becoming the version of god we worship, if that's what we think. God is like. So I don't think that. Why not? Well, I think a really good answer, if, if we're going to go to other parts of the Bible to interpret this one, I think we don't have to go as far as the book of James. We can just go uh, a couple chapters back um, to just before the Tower of Babel story, where I think the ancient writers really set up what the story was to be about. So after the Noadic flood, uh, God says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Jewish dietary laws would come later. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Abound on the earth and multiply in it. I think this God has great ambitions for humanity. He wants humanity to be the dominant species on the globe. He's not trying to take humanity down a peg. If anything, the opposite. If you go back and and you read in Genesis 11, people are traveling, they're spreading, and then they stop, and they settle, and they start building this monument. And God says, you know, nothing you do will be impossible for you. And then I think what God does is he kicks these jokers out of his basement and he makes them go get a real job being the dominant species on the face of the earth and not slaves to the vanity of some king, right? The second question that I think this gets to, if if that's the character of God, if that's who God is, then that also says a lot about who we are in relation to God as mortals, And I I think the conventional interpretation reads a bit like a lot of other mythologies, right? Um, Not non-Jewish, non-Christian ones. Like, this is the myth of Icarus, right? Uh, Icarus um, is is told, you know, don't fly too high or you'll get too close to the sun. And being a young person, he does. And so his wings melt and he falls and dies, right? Uh, This is an ancient story that Greeks would tell um, to, to encourage their kids to be moderate in their expectations of life, not to get too big an idea of who they were or what their place in the, world, in the world was. And ancient mythologies are full of this stuff, about putting humans in their place and saying, you're not meant to be that good or that high. That's just for the gods. You stay in your lane, right? But even if that 
I mean, most of us aren't afraid of you know flying too high and crashing into the sea. Even if, if those myths don't really speak to you, I, I do think there's a, an underlying insecurity that the people of Shinar expressed when they said, we're afraid we'll be forgotten, right? That was their motivation. And I think we still feel that today as humans. I think we still feel this sense that maybe God wants us to be the dominant species on the earth, but we're not so sure we're up to it, right? Because we know we can do it really, really wrong. I, I chose this as an example. This is a, a beach covered in trash, right? But, but I think all of us feel this fear that this is going to be our personal legacy or our culture's legacy. And I, I think when we start to feel that, it's very, very easy to do exactly what the people of Shinar do in this story and just kind of tunnel in and say, you know, I'm, I'm really just not going to worry about my grand place in the cosmos. I'm just going to focus on, like, this, this small thing that I think I can control that I think will make me happy. And if you're a king, that ends up looking like monuments to your own vanity. And if you're literally anyone else, it ends up looking like serving some rich king's monument to their own vanity. This insecurity that we feel today as we're in a global society isn't new. And it was already being satirized in this ancient religious story from long, long ago, long before it was written down. The Hebrew scriptures offer us a different vision of who we are and what we can be as humans. Vision like this. This is my son, August. This is incidentally the only slide that made it from the old presentation to this one, um, except for the Bible verses. Um, this was him when he was about a year and a half old. And he was, you know, as kids that age are, he was starting to get up and into things and discover all the ways we hadn't properly childproofed our house. And so he had gotten into this drawer that, um, like, it started with, like, the bottom drawer where all the Tupperware was. And that was just fun kid stuff, right? He could get in there and play around with it. But the next drawer up had a big plastic tin full of flour. And... <laughs> He would get into it and start playing with it. And this happened more than once before his mom and I got wise and said, we need to move this thing so that he can't get to it. And, uh, I mean, certainly when I saw this, uh, I was a little frustrated because I knew this was a mess that I was going to have to clean up. But I was also proud enough to stop and take a picture. And I think it's because I saw in my son, this developing person. Like, he's just starting to get his feet under him. He's just starting to be able to do cool, interesting stuff. And I can't help but feel that this is something of what God feels in this passage when he sees the people of Shinar, and he's like, oh, you're, you're really making a mess of the whole plan, but I'm also kind of proud of you. Nothing's going to be impossible for you. And so he puts a stop to it so that the greater plan can go on. But I, I just don't think the anger is there. I don't think the resentment that people are becoming too big for their britches is there. And I, I think in an ancient world where the state religions of the gods were 
constantly in their narratives putting humans in a state of subjection. The Old Testament was constantly putting humans in a place of honor. We are the image of God, not the petty idols that uh, are commissioned. Humans are given the whole earth to cultivate and eat if we want to. And we're not meant to be slaves to the vanity of an elite few. And so when we look at the challenges of our world today and the messes we make, it's, it's easy to lose heart and to content ourselves with monuments to our own vanity. But if we do that, I think we will miss the heart of a God who loves us like a father. So if you're here today and you're feeling discouraged about things, if, if you're thinking, <laughs> like, John, I don't, I don't think humans have it in, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't think we have this in us. I don't think we're meant uh, for, for this civilization we have. I don't think we're capable of doing it. Um, maybe something in the news is, has got you worried, uh, whether it's the environment or politics or war. I want to encourage you that God's, God thought we could do it. <laughs> God turned us loose on the earth on purpose. Um, and so what I would invite you to do, the band is going to come. Um, we're going to play one last song, and this is a time uh, we take to pray for each other. If that speaks to you, if that's a, a problem you think about or it keeps you up at night, come get prayer. Um, you can come up to the front. Someone who's been trained not to be too weird about it will come, and they'll just put their hand on your shoulder and ask how they can pray for you. So with that, would you stand?